This is Mike Quinlan, and you are listening to the Business Owner Transition Podcast. There is one constant in business, and that is that every one of us will eventually exit, and sometimes sooner than we think. In this podcast, we discuss topics to help you with elite preparation, so when you're ready for transition, you won't just exit, you will join that exclusive group of owners who have accomplished an elite exit. We talk with former owners, exit advisors, and a host of other experts to help you increase the value of your exit, execute it on your terms, and most importantly, do it without regret. So let's join the show. Hi, everybody. It's Mike again, and welcome back to the Business Owner Transition Podcast. I've got a great guest with me today. We're going to do something a little bit different than what we do generally, and that is that we're going to focus on the dental industry. We're going to be talking with Kevin Cumbus. He is the founder and president of Tusk Partners, which is a dedicated M&A firm in the dental industry. Kevin, welcome aboard. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, listen, I, I, it's always fun for me to talk to you because you educate me and teach me new stuff every time we talk. Well, I've had the pleasure of listening to you for a little while now. You, you've spent some time with one of my dear friends, Brett Miller, uh, back a couple months ago. Uh, he and I had the pleasure of working together in the dental industry in the early years of our career here. And after I heard that one, I was hooked. So I'm happy to be a guest now on a, on a podcast that I'm a listener of and fan of as well. Well, I certainly appreciate that. I'll send you a check here in the mail so that uh, I can still have your support. Um, hey, listen, I want everybody to understand that th while the focus of what Kevin does is work in the dental industry and a specific part of the M&A world in the dental industry, which we'll talk about in just a moment, the concepts and discussion that we're going to have today uh, apply to all industries. So if you are, again, thinking about that elite exit, what are the three legs of the elite exit stool? The first one is maximizing transaction value. Kevin and his team, that's what they do for a living. The second one is doing it on your terms. Now, Kevin and his team live there as well. And those are those two pieces of the three legs are areas that working with somebody like Kevin can provide you more control over than you would if you went and tried to do it on your own, which can impact the third leg, which I hope you all remember. The third leg of the elite exit stool is doing this all without regret. So Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit first about the industry. And then secondly, why don't you go into, you know, what you and your team do and what portion of the industry specific to M&A you work in? Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. Um, just for your listeners, listeners ed education, I think it is helpful for everyone to know that I did spend a career in finance and investment banking in the broader U.S. economy, where I was working primarily with publicly traded businesses across all industries, uh, but then had a specific focus at Wachovia Securities, now Wells Fargo, um, work, working with financial institutions like banks, insurance companies, and private equity groups. So I, I took all that knowledge with me as I began my career in the world of dentistry. 
Um, so, you know, you, you see the way the big companies work, you see the way the large investment bankers work, and, and you know, you, you live that world for a little while, and then you come into the business of dentistry and the valuation world of dentistry, and you just make the assumption that it's going to be the same, right? You go, these skills will be 100% transferable. And when I got involved in the, the valuation world in the business of dentistry, I'm going to date myself here, 16 years ago, um, it was not the same. No one was talking about earnings. No one was talking about PE ratios. And no one was speaking of EBITDA. Uh, and, and really, it was, it was because the buy side of the equation, right? The sellers were the dentist and the buyers, the buy side of the equation at that point were probably 99% dentists. And dentists are wonderful clinical providers. They're great, you know, great providers to their communities, um, but they like to buy, buy practices at 100% loan to value with no money out of pocket. And effectively, what, what we were seeing on the buy side was it, the prices were limited to what lenders were willing to loan an individual dentist to buy a dental practice. And all the valuation studies that I would see were framed up as a percentage of revenue. Um, now, for those of you kind of keeping track at home and you, those of you who know what EBITDA is, in a dental practice, that's about four times, sometimes as low as three, sometimes as rich as five times EBITDA, but arguably a very affordable acquisition multiple. So, I, you know, I come into the space with all this investment banking experience thinking I'm just going to, you know, wow the world and go, wait a minute, we're not even using the tools of basic valuation theory or the way Wall Street trades. So I, I, it was... Um, a cold glass of water to the face to know that everything that I had learned over the last 10 years, I needed to put on the shelf for a little while. Um, so that was 16 years ago. Now, it, the, the world has changed a lot since that period of time, uh, primarily because private equity caught wind of how rich the margins are in dentistry. Uh, they've done this before in other healthcare verticals. They've certainly done it before in other U.S. industries. Right now, they're doing it in HVAC, for example. Um, so dentistry right now is, is, being, um, is participating in a massive roll-up through private equity companies. Um, there's over 150 private equity-backed groups today. Um, it's, it's wild to me to think that there are that many buyers in the space. Uh, but when, they, when this first started, call it 15 years ago, there were a small handful of buyers. Uh, the biggest one that some of some of your listeners might know about is Heartland Dental Care, simply because they were bought by KKR a couple of years back, which is one of the largest, most successful private equity groups in the nation. So what what Heartland did when they came in, they said, Doc, you know, you were, you were going to sell your practice to that dentist for 80 percent of collections, which might have been a three and a half X deal, three and a half times EBITDA. And they go, let us pay you 100 percent of your collections and you'll be better off. We're happy to pay you. We can afford to do it. And what they'll really do is probably pay it between four and a half to five times. But all the while, they knew that when they sold, they're going to trade it 10 times. Right. So they were just enjoying the arbitrage. Um, since that time, 15 years ago, more entrants have come into the market. More money has from private equity investors has flooded into the market. Um, valuations have continually climbed each and every year, 
We've seen this not just in dental, we've seen it in vet, we've seen it in optometrics, we're starting to see it in med spa, we see it in behavioral health. This is what happens when private equity money comes into a market that has rich margins and uh, arguably low valuations. Um, It's not just the money though, there's some overriding economic factors as well that I think are important to, to point to. Dentistry does have rich margins. It has uh, payer issues, though. Um, it's, if you have a business that's run uh, on collections based off of PPO or insurance, you don't have a lot of upward pricing power when it comes to increasing your fees. Compare that to veterinary, for example. You know, vets don't take insurance. Uh, and now that every one of us has a dog, because we all came out of COVID, now all of a sudden we have dogs around the house for some reason. Um, they're going to turn the screws to us on pricing and all those fees are going up. So vets have pricing power and dentistry dentistry does not. Um, that's, that's a negative drag on valuation. But one of the most positive influences on valuation is when you look back at 2001.com bubble burst, 2008, uh, the mortgage crisis that sent the U.S. into quite a tailspin. And now most recently, COVID and the economic crisis that we're recovering from and the potential onset of a recession, uh, spending by patients in the dental economy was flat, not down. We always take care of our teeth. And, you know, no matter how good micro technologies get, there's still not a pill to fix a cavity inside my mouth. There's no little micro robot that can get in there and, 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 you know, mill a crown and like fix my teeth for me. So until they solve for that, dentistry is pretty insulated. And after 2001, when spending, when private equity noticed that spending was flat, not down, new entrants entered the market in droves. Coming out of 2008, same thing was noticed and more entrants came in. Here we are two years into COVID, coming out of this um, into whatever the new normal is, we're going to see new buyers come in and and more than likely see valuations continue to rise. Um, So it, it has been... I think right time, right place to be where where I've been to to really have a front row seat to see this from uh, let's call it a dental broker perspective. Uh, when I joined the dental economy, uh, I saw it from a DSO perspective. When I worked for Affordable Dentures and saw them go from 120 to 210 locations, I saw it as a dental practice owner when I built a dental practice that I ultimately sold to my associate, and now as a, an M and A advisor uh, here at Tusk. Uh, it's it's been a lot of fun, Mike, and, and it's really just beginning. Um, you know, it, we're, we are 25% consolidated, give or take two percentage points on either side. So we got a long way to go. Right. Well, I tell you, it, it, there's a lot of frontier out there, not just in dental, but as you look across all industries with there's, you know, it's estimated there's $2 trillion worth of liquid, liquid capital that is sitting out there that private equity firms need to put to work. So, we see that across many different industries. The roll-ups, 100%. The HVAC world is uh, kind of going crazy right now. Consumer medical in general mm-hmm. is is strong. You reference the veterinary space. My son called me last night and he said, I asked him how he was doing. He said, oh, we're doing fine, except for, and I was like, uh-oh. Uh, his girlfriend had to spend $3,500 on her cat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, over the weekend. Yeah, so you know, I'm thinking 
you know, that is, uh, and, and was happy to do it. Right. Right. Because they, that's what we do. Right. They, that's they, what they, we they do. They turn from, um, these things to, they, they keep the varmints away on the farm to our <laughs> fur babies. It is, it's, it that's is right. a different way we are treating these animals today. That's right. But the point is right. That there is, as you said, the nature of these businesses tend to be resistant to the, uh, macroeconomy. Absolutely. Right? So if if we do have a significant downturn, the opportunity for these private equity companies that must, by the way, put their money to work. That's right. Okay. Um, they turn to these industries, these consumer medical, and what our discussion today is dentistry, to uh, to put that money into work, to put it in play. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, there's, there's a difference between the, the single doc that has a, you know, a small practice and the multi-practice kind of mini DSO out there. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You know, I started a little bit of work in dental back in the 2008, 2009 timeframe. And we used to talk about valuations on these businesses being, you know, um, 0.63 times trailing 12 months revenue. Yeah, that sounds about right. That, that, right. That's dead on yeah. where we were. Yeah. 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 And, and now we're talking about a new world of multiples on EBITDA. And I, everybody that listens to me always knows if you're a client or if you're part of the academy, that the one thing we tell you at the beginning is that you're not allowed to say the word multiple until, when is it? The cocktail party after you sold your business, right? <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll get to your question, but when we, when we started Tusk about seven years ago, you know, we started writing articles about EBITDA because it, it was the metric on which private equity-backed DSOs were, were valuing practices and putting value on cash flows. And I can't tell you how many conferences I have went to in the first three years where dentists said, you gotta slow down and tell me what this is. That these right. guys had multiple locations, $20 million of revenue, and were thinking that they were probably worth 15 million bucks. And in reality, they're probably worth 50 million bucks. Right. So, so, you know, private equity really, uh, the early adopters were able to take advantage of, let's call it an information asymmetry in the market where the private equity groups had, they, they'd seen this story before. They knew how rapidly consolidating markets work. Those who get in early are able to buy at really attractive valuations and sell at really attractive exits, right? Uh, but, but back to your question on the differences between the solo doctor and the group practice space. Um, let, me, let me just speak about my father. So he, he was a pediatric dentist in Montgomery, Alabama. He was a solo practitioner. And he, he follows the, the demographic of a lot of uh, individual dentists that we speak with. Um, he is the centerpiece of, of you know, his community. He gives back regularly. He is his practice. He is inextricably linked to his profession. When he goes to the grocery store, he sees generations of patients. And the thought of him selling his practice is um, not just 
a financial discussion that he's going to have with his wife, but it's an emotional discussion. And it's, and it's a conversation that actually brings up mortality for him. And he can't imagine really separating himself from the profession and the work because it's always done and always ever done. The other thing about the individual dentist is um, they have probably reached the point of diminishing returns in working on their business by the time they are 45, sometimes as late as 50 years old. Meaning the thought of spending another hour working on their business, even if it means an extra $1,000 of net income to them and the family each and every week, isn't worth it. Because of that, because they've reached the point of diminishing returns, they're overpaying their team. They're not maximizing profitability. Uh, they're happier to overpay for services and goods, supplies, inputs, and team members, rather than have to put up with the headache and the heartburn of that negotiation. They become more relational and less focused on bottom line. So th that's, that's the individual dentist. And, you know, when we talk with individual dentists, we ask them what's most important to them, what they're looking for in a transaction. Some only want to sell to a dentist. And th that, that's great. But we won't let them off the phone until at least they understand what they're giving up should they sell to an individual dentist. Because the gap between a, a solo practitioner selling to an individual dentist and selling to a DSO um, can, be bad, can be vast. Sometimes a DSO will be willing to pay two or three times more than an individual dentist can afford to buy that same business for. Why are they willing to do that? Because there's a lot of inefficiencies inside of that business. And a lot of those people that work inside of that practice, from the DSO's perspective, could be viewed as redundant because a large private right. equity-backed DSO has a centralized service office. They have teams of people working on accounts receivable, accounts payable, scheduling. They've got a multi-million dollar marketing machine. Uh, they've got synergistic cost savings with the supply company, with the laboratory company. They're able, they, they already have teams of folks who have negotiated the PPO reimbursement rates, the insurance reimbursement rates at much higher levels than the, than the individual dentist is able to achieve on his, on his own or her own. So when they look at that individual dental practice, they go, Oh my God, the guy's doing 2 million on his own. He only has $200,000 of EBITDA. He's only running a, at a 10% EBITDA margin. But by the time we sprinkle our secret sauce all over this thing, enhance the revenue, cut the costs, although we're paying him $4 million for it, which feels like a rich multiple, we're going to be able to put a million dollars of EBITDA on the bottom line of this thing. So, yeah. so again, it's, it's inefficiency because the doctor has reached the point of diminishing returns, um, has a, built an incredible lifestyle business, but has never really layered in the systems to decrease costs and prepare for scale. They're great targets yeah. for DSOs. Yeah, you know, I, I tell you, I talk about this frequently in the academy, and I call it complacent complacency creep, right? Yep. It's expense creep due to complacency because you've turned this kind of into a lifestyle business or you are uh, comfortable in the operation of the business over time. And so that really can take away from the first leg of the elite exit stool, 
right? It may be mm-hmm. because you, with these these transactions are priced on EBITDA. If you have fat in expenses, you're taking away your opportunity to maximize your transaction value. So um, preparing your business for transaction is critical so that you can meet those three legs of the stool. Another thing that I would just a quick comment on, you mentioned identity and how tied that is to the profession or to the practice by many of these solo practitioners. And if the uh, owner cannot separate their identity from this business that they're going to sell, the opportunity for them to be in that 25% of business owners who don't deeply regret selling their business within a year is very, very difficult. It is. It is. You know, you're, when my father thought about selling his business, he said, I, I, he, he lived there. He goes, I, I don't really care what I make on the exit. What's important to me is that we find the right person to carry my legacy forward and make sure that, that my team of 15 continues to have jobs for years to come. Uh, right. My father knew when he shared all that with me and sat down with him, I said, you know, you're not going to exit at the top, right? Like you're, you're, you're good with that. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm good. I know it. I get it. He was looking for different things. Right. But you know, right. He, he didn't regret his exit because he found the right person with the right, uh, let's call it the, the, the right uh, cultural fit for the business as well. And it ended up being a great trade for all involved. But, but that's what being an emotionally, ta- emotionally attached to your business leads you to do sometimes is not focus yeah. on maximization on the exit. Well, think about it this way, right? So when we talk about maximizing the value of the exit, so some of that's financial, right? Sure. But oftentimes there's, there are other ways that you're maximizing the value of the exit. We have a success formula. You and I have talked about this before. Success is equal to process times vision times desire. And what your dad has done is he's done a very, very nice job with the vision element. He sat down, it sounds like, and looked deep inside and said, look, these are the things that are most important to me as I think about moving to my next step, mm-hmm. right? And some of those elements include things like, what do, I, what do I want the business to do going forward? How do I want that to be characterized? How do I take care of my people, right? So right. for him, that was more important than a little more extra money, yeah. right? Uh, and he probably, I would bet, uh, over time did a really good job uh, pulling dollars out of the business and investing outside of the business. So he didn't, uh, he didn't feel as much pressure probably to maximize the actual transaction value as he did maximizing that, that vision. Value. Yeah, you look at, you're, you're exactly right. And, and when we are talking with potential new clients, we are, we always ask them, is this the linchpin to your retirement? Is the sale of this business the linchpin to your retirement? Or is it a victory lap? Is this what's going to allow you to give back to the community and take care of the grandkids or the grandkids' grandkids' private school tuition? Like, wh- where do we really stand here? And then we quickly follow up that line of questioning with what's most important to you in the transaction? 
Is it maximizing cash at close? Is it making sure that the business is here to stay for multiple generations? Um, or is it really, are, are you one of those folks that wants to level up? Because it, it's a unique world right now in dental, where if you have a million, two, three million dollars of EBITDA, there are certainly private equity groups that will say, Mike, you built a great business. Um, you got $2 million of EBITDA today. How do you feel like, how do you feel about going to 20? And you can, if you have the right business and you've got the, the right energy, because this stuff is not easy, signing on with a private equity group to triple or 10X your business, you're signing on for more work than you've ever done in the history of time with a brand new boss with a likelihood of getting 4X your return. But it, I mean, it's a lot of work, but there are folks that is important to them that we can connect them with the capital for growth. And what, what I tell everybody, Mike, is there's no wrong answer here and everybody's answer is different. So like, just tell me what you want. And a lot of folks, Mike, are not ready to have that conversation when they talk with us because they've never run the filter in their mind. They've never actually been asked the question. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, that is fundamental to what we do with our owners, right? Yep. Is we help get them ready for you. And my question to you before we, we move on is, um, is what's easier for you, right? Somebody that has fully participated in financial planning, because by the way, I won't work with a owner unless they've done it. Yeah. Okay. Because I have to know how to communicate with the other advisors on the team about what is, what are the, what are the acceptable range of deal terms? What, what does the consideration have to look like at the closing mm -hmm. table, right? How much cash do they need to have? Um, what other terms can they accept? I mean, do they have the capability to roll 50% of that cash into an equity stake or be able to tolerate some kind of long-term uh, payout through holdbacks uh, or an earnout. So it's, it's really information, uh, important information. And so my question to you is um, somebody that has gone through that versus somebody that has not gone through that, how does that make your job different? Okay. So, uh, I want to. I want to. I want to give you that answer through two filters. One through Tusk's filter, through through the relationship advisor, through the M and A advisor's perspective. Uh, when someone knows exactly what they want and uh, what they're looking to achieve through a transaction, the market is so robust right now. We can almost guarantee delivery of that for them. Or if their expectations are at a point where I, I don't, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I can't deliver that. It's a quick answer. Um, sorry, Dr. Smith, you need $200 million from the exit of your business. I've, I've run the numbers and I, I'm not going to be able to achieve that for you. Now, here's somebody who can help you maybe get there, right? That, that, that's okay. The other piece of the equation is when, when someone knows what they want and they can clearly articulate that on management calls to buyers and they don't deviate from the script and they get better and better and better at delivering that message to 10, 15 buyers, buyers begin to salivate because they talk to so many other business owners that are wishy-washy. And they're saying, well, tell me how you're different or tell me what you do. That they want, that buyers are attracted to people who know what they want with respect to the sale of their business. Yep. So it's easy, yep. it's, it's more enjoyable for Tusk. 
and it commands higher, better outcomes from the buy side. Yeah. And I will tell you from talking to PE, I, I talk to PE professionals, private equity professionals often, and almost a hundred percent of the time, while they really, you know, would like to, to talk with owners that want to do their own deal and not have an intermediary. What they really want is to have an intermediary because they know that it may cost them a little more to do the deal, sure. but the likelihood that the deal is going to get done yeah. is far higher. Um, and you know how this is, you know, it better than I do. The cost for a company to do financial due diligence is high. And the time, the money, all the rest of it that goes into doing one of these deals is, is a drain. And they would rather have an intermediary involved that is, is managing the expectations and the outcome and the process for the seller than not. So uh, that takes us kind of to the next question here, which is you deal in a portion of M&A in the dental industry that is more focused, correct? That's right. Yeah, we, we, we today are focused exclusively in the business of dentistry. And now we're going to go even a, la- a layer deeper there. We only work with dentists and groups that are, are looking to partner with a DSO, which is a dental service organization typically backed by a, a private equity group, an aggregator of dental practices or a private equity group or private capital like a family fund. If a dentist comes to us and wants to sell to a dentist, we refer that work out. So really our our buyer pool is uh, our our private equity in nature. Right. Now tell me a little bit about the the structure of these deals right now. I know that that rollover equity is common. I know that earnouts are common and you know, the, the cash is the cash, but let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing as far as deal structures and maybe a little bit about, uh, we've talked on this show before about the dangers of earnouts and, and what sellers need to know about that. But let's talk also focus more on the rollover equity piece yep. and the various things uh, sellers need to think about there. Okay. So a, a couple things about a dental deal, especially if you have a dentist owner who is working inside of the business. Uh, first and foremost, they require post-sale employment agreements. Unless that dentist has replaced himself or herself clinically, you, you're going to sell your business and have a job when it's all said and done with. So the term of that employment agreement matters a lot. And that's, that's one thing that I want to make sure your listeners hear is if you're building a business where you are mission critical to the business itself, and you sell your business, you haven't. You now have created yourself a job. And if you don't want to do that, you got to find a way to replace yourself as soon as possible before you go to market. Now, on structure, you're right, Mike. It's it's cash, it's equity, and we're let's let's put a pin in equity for a minute and come back to it because there's a lot to talk about there. Um, there are earnouts as well, um, and then the, uh, on the back end, there are also growth. Let's call them. Um, bonuses for growth. So and I, I'm gonna, there's a difference in my mind between those two. Um, cash is cash is cash all day long. We know how that comes and goes. Um, let's talk about the equity. On the equity side, there are equity opportunities uh, in various places inside of a DSO. Um, the, t- the highest level is what we call Holdco. So it's the holding company equity. Um, and, and inside this equity, it is rather illiquid. 
and you don't have the opportunity to monetize that equity until the private equity group sells their position. Best case scenario, it is Perry Pursuit of the private equity group's equity and the CEO's equity. Most of the time it is not, right? So ask the question and see who else has this class of equity. I'll never forget building uh, Tusk's LLC and I was talking to my attorney and I said, hey, what, what should I be? He goes, you need to be an LLC with an S Corp so you can have a hundred different slugs of equity and you, they can all have different rights and privilege, get privileges and obligations and responsibilities because when you're bringing people in, you'll have the best equity and then everybody else will have a subclass of equity, right? Mike's nodding his head like, be sure to ask, like, is this the same equity you, Mr. Business Development Guy, have? Like, let's just make sure we get the same thing. So anyway, so that, that's hold co-equity. Then there is what's called um, joint venture equity. And joint venture equity can exist among a collection of practices in a region. It can be uh, equity that lives in the group that you are selling to the larger group. Um, or it could be uh, JV equity in a state where they've carved out the entire state and you might just be bringing two practices to the table, but they're going to give you the opportunity to co-invest and have maintain an equity position in that state or region. I really like this slug of, J of equity um, for a couple of reasons. One, it creates distribution opportunities on a quarterly basis, which can be really nice when you're going from business owner who keeps all cash flow after overhead is covered and debt is and debt is serviced to now I'm an employee inside the organization making two to five hundred thousand dollars a year. Those distributions can really help offset that lack of income and delay you need to tapping into savings. Uh, but also their conversion rights with this JV equity. And every DSO has different conversion rights. Some allow you to trade up trade up to the multiple that they exit at. Some allow you to trade up to a cap and then split the difference. Some have put rights, some have call rights, um, some never monetize and you're just stuck in it forever and you can only sell it to your to your associates. Like it's crazy. It's everything under the sun. Uh, and then the final slug of equity is typically equity down at the practice level. Um, again, this can come with distributions as well and has all different features around monetization, uh, but the distributions um, will be received on a pro rata basis, depending on how much equity you roll into the practice that you're selling, typically after a management fee. And you go, on, well, well, hold on, who am I paying the management fee to? What's it for? What's customary? And management fees and DSOs can range from 15 to 6%. And they're kind of all providing the same amount of service, right? So I, I love these deals because of the 150 groups out there that are private equity backed, none of them have the same structure. It's great. The other great thing about it is if someone it really needs, if a client of ours really um, comes to us and says, Kevin, I, I'm, I'm, I'm set when it comes to my assets under management. I'm, I'm fine there. I've got 10 million set aside. I've got a low cost of living. I'm looking to roll the dice. And I want to invest, you know, 40% of the sale of my business into the riskiest DSO that's got the most upside. We know who that is. Um, I wouldn't necessarily put your money there, Mike, or maybe my money, but at least I know who that is. Uh, if, right. they, if they say, hey, can you just get my money back in the shortest period of time possible? I don't even care about the upside. Yeah, we know that group too. Um, and, and you know what? I wouldn't put your money or my money there either. 
but that that's how how I mean how wide of array of of equity opportunities there are just in the dental economy alone. I mean, Mike, you've worked with a ton yeah. of business owners uh, across uh, you know a vast number of industries. Is it the same everywhere, or, or is what we're seeing in dental just supremely unique? No, it's the same everywhere. I, I think what's interesting about it is that you told me a story before we went on the air about uh, you asked a question of somebody that that oh, yeah. has, was looking at a deal and, and he, he asked him what kind of equity he was. And he said, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why don't you tell that? Because <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that often. So, Yeah, I, he, he goes, he goes, I've got class B shares. Are those good? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't really know. I don't know if those are good or not. Um, so that, right. that's and, the, yeah. so, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that you're, it, 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 what entity are we talking about? Right. I right. mean, it could be a variety of different things as you articulated a few moments ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the way I like to, to frame it and we talk about it here at the shop is what are my rights? What are my privileges? What are my obligations? What are my responsibilities? And, and, and maybe most importantly, where does this sit in the waterfall? when there is capital that comes into the business. I know it sits yep. after debt. What preferred securities are ahead of me? What's the common share? Just just show me the waterfall and then show me if you trade at this number, will my equity even be in the money? Where do we have to get to for my equity to be in the money? Yeah. And yeah. you know, so So how do I get diluted and yep. how much how do I benefit? Right. Right. Two pretty simple questions. Um, that that are that arguably, if I'm if I'm the buyer, I want to lead with that. I want to show the upside. Uh, but all too often, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a key going into a lock, right? You've got to ask the exact right set of questions to unlock that lock to get the answer, and it, it just shouldn't be right. that way. Well, let me talk to you just a bit about the Wild West, sure, the Wild Wild West out there. So, one of our former clients. Uh, chose to go down a unsolicited offer route, and uh, he we he called us after he received the LOI. We talked to him. It was a industry buyer and uh, strategic, but it was private equity backed. And he said, "Hey, listen, this these are people I've been talking to for a long time. I would really like to to do a deal with these folks, but." Before I do anything with this LOI, I would like you to put a team together and help me. Okay? okay. So this isn't what you do. This was a pretty straightforward, smaller, um, uh, smaller deal. And, but what we, we still put a good team around him and helped, took him out of the center of the circle of the advisors, yeah. helped him negotiate his way to a successful resolution. However, at the end of it, he said, Mike, I got to tell you, um, this was the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. And I've been stressed out for, for months and months. Right. And I'm so happy that we, 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 uh, you know, we're able to conclude this successfully. But, um, yeah, the difference there is that that person had been client for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so we had really good intelligence. We had great financial data. We had, yeah, the right lawyer in place. We had a lot of things that 99% of the business owners out there don't have. Sure. And so his discussion is going to be about, you know, the difference, how the deal tone changed from 
the business development guy who was taking them out to play golf and doing all that kind of stuff to the actual negotiation part where the private equity guys now their deal team was involved and how they were trying to erode the, the, uh, offered purchase price Mm -hmm. from the, uh, letter of intent through due diligence to the closing table. And, uh, fortunately we were able to, to stop that, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, obviously understanding the rollover equity is critical, but talk to me a little bit about the mistakes that you see, uh, individuals who are trying to do their own deal make and how much money it can cost them to do it. Yeah. Um, so again, let, let's dentists and, and our many dentists that have built great business are incredible business people. They're great entrepreneurs. It, it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to build a four five, 10 location group, hire the right people, uh, train them up, build a scalable business that can continue to grow uh, with or without your presence inside of it, right? That, that is not an easy thing to do. Uh, but when it comes to M&A transactions, uh, most business owners are going to be lucky if they get to do one, right? That this is a business that they had yeah. built brick by brick, patient by patient, you know, employee by employee. They are emotionally attached to it. Even guys who have 25 locations are emotionally attached to that business. It's not just my father in Montgomery who's attached to it. It's anybody. And when they're sitting there working and they're having a bad day and all of a sudden they get a call from a business development guy that says, you know, Mike, I've been thinking about you for weeks. I've been admiring your business from afar for a long time. And I'd like to take you out for some red meat and some red wine. Um, The answer is going to be yes, right? Because business ownership is lonely. You want to be told you got a pretty business baby. And then when they offer you something that you never thought you could ever achieve in your wildest dreams, you start to listen. And, and you start to provide information because you feel like this is someone who gets me and they're on my side. Uh, the biggest mistake we see uh, business owners make with respect to entertaining unsolicited offers is the free flow of information right out of the gate uh, before they've had an advisor help them understand where value lives in their business. Uh, if I were going to buy your business, Mike, I would like to buy it um, when it's not doing so well and you hadn't turned all the screws to tighten up everything around it. Um, you hadn't quite window dressed it. You hadn't quite built a strategy for, uh, for, for growth in the quarters and years to come. And maybe you couldn't articulate where the business was going because th- if you don't know where it's going, it's gonna be a lot easier for me to pick it off from you. And when you yep. start sharing numbers with me, um, I'm gonna come to my own conclusions about what's going on in your business. Because when you work with an advisor, they're able to run the numbers and then ask the hard questions to the to the client or to the business owner and be readily armed with, let me tell you what happened in June. We lost a doctor. It wasn't a good cultural fit. We found somebody else. He's a he's a go-getter. It's going to be better next quarter than what you see here on paper. So it's it's really beginning to give that information away because once you do, they start to build up a story in their mind about your business and really don't ask for your input. They're also calculating the EBITDA, not you. EBITDA, I know it sounds like it is just a math equation, um, but there are, it is so much more to that. Um, we, we spend a large part of our time building defendable, adjustable, e- adjusted EBITDA positions that we know will survive a quality of earnings. Um, 
and um, have had great success with that. We haven't had a deal uh, show any material decline in enterprise value over the last 24 transactions we've done as a result of the QV. I can't say that's the same for guys who are doing their own deals. Um, I think that what's different about any, any M&A advisor, especially ones that work a lot in the same industry, we know the quality of earnings firms. We, we know who's running those deals. And, and, and we also know that the buyers that we're working with, um, they want to see everything we're bringing to market. So uh, they are incented to do the right thing and do what they said they were going to do. And if they decide that they want to change a deal term or two, we are quick to remind them that we have 36 deals coming to market in the next 12 months. And we would sure love for them to see all those deals, but we really don't have to let them see all those deals. Um, so, you know, we, when, when you work on your own, I think you give up a lot of control right out of the gate. And once you give it up that control, it's really hard to, to, to bring it back. They're setting the pace. They're setting the cadence. Um, they, they're telling you, we got to get this closed for X reason or Y reason. Uh, they don't, they're not going to take the time for you to fully understand it. Um, and it's like anything, if you don't know the right questions to ask, you're not going to get the answers. Right. Well, so first of all, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm biased here because I always recommend to my clients that they use a M&A intermediary to help them. And what they always tell me is, well, gosh, Mike, but they charge so much money. Why? I mean, it's going to cost, I'll save so much money if I just do it myself. And I'm going to ask you that, but what I'm going to tell you, what I tell them is that, look, any money that you spend on a good, high quality M&A intermediary like Kevin and his team is, I believe, right, going to come back to you in multiples of whatever that expense is. And the reason is because it's not just that top line number, but it's the real top line number, yeah. right? Because how much are you going to, or first of all, how much is, is the offer going to be the best offer if you're not represented? And you're not going to market and making this a competitive process. I'm going to tell you, no, it's not going to be the best, right? right. As a matter of fact, I helped, I helped a company out in, in Texas that was offered $30 million for the company. And the uh, after we told them, hey, look, sir, you need to put this through a competitive process. And they took our advice and we went through a whole, a whole bunch of work. Uh, that same company turned around and offered them $80 million. <laughs> Okay. So was it their first offer the best offer? <laughs> no, 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 I've never like seen that. the first offer be the best offer. Yeah. So just to, to finish, I was just going to say, so not only is it not the best offer, but secondly, the, the what they put on paper when you get the LOI versus what you get at the, uh, with the, uh, at closing is likely to be significantly different. So yeah. have a good M&A guy on your team. And so now I'll ask you about that. Yeah. So we're, we, we're in a world right now where if you've got a business of size, $2 million of EBITDA in the dental economy, um, the business development teams have found you. And you, you've got at least one letter of intent sitting on the corner of your desk begging for you to call that guy when you've had a bad afternoon, right? right. So, so we are always selling against these, these unsolicited offers. And what I point to are the case studies that we've been able to, to do for our clients. 
um, we had an ortho deal down in uh, outside of San Antonio, Texas. She, she called me and she goes, you're not going to believe what I've got to offer for this practice. I'm just going to take it. And I said, Amy, stop. Like, just, just send me some numbers. Don't like stay, get off the phone. Just like send me what you got. And <laughs> she was again floored that anyone would ever pay her the initial offer she got for her practice. And, uh, you know, I just guaranteed her, I said, Amy, you're going to earn a multiple of my fee if you just allow us to take you to the broader market. Um, she, she did it because she got outside counsel and they, they supported our hypothesis that it was, it was worth a heck of a lot more. But more importantly, the structure didn't meet her needs from a cash flow perspective. And two, she, she needed to borrow what a year terms exit without regret. She was a young orthodontist, a brilliant entrepreneur, had her whole life ahead of her, and non-competes were really important to her. And the ability to continue to create new businesses was really important to her. So we worked with her and through the marketed process, was able to get a 63% improvement on that offer and ultimately a deal that she was, is elated with. S similar story with an oral surgeon up in Northern Virginia, a group with three surgeons, a large EBITDA, big footprint, branded business that the whole let's call it DC corridor new, um, they received an unsolicited offer about a year ago that they were considering from a new up and coming DSO that they were honored, frankly, to be a part of and invited to work with. It felt like an honor that they would even know who they are. Thankfully, we, some, we got connected to them through an accounting firm and um, spent some time with them and their numbers and just said, fellas, this is way out of market. We know we can help you. Took them out to a broader group and that same uh, DSO came to the table with an offer that was 90% higher than their original offer just 12 months ago. And we were able to get them a deal that was 99% higher than their original offer. So it's, you know, I, I tell folks, if, if I'm in your shoes, I, I want to be chased. I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I, wasn't, I wasn't this dashing, good-looking man growing up <laughs> in, uh, in junior high and high school. I didn't have the girls chasing me. Um, going through a marketing process, you can have the market chase you. And when you have the market chase you and you got high demand for your business and your business is as unique as it is, you can you, you have leverage and you can drive up valuation, certainly. But more importantly, you can find the right partner at the highest valuation. Uh, these deals are they're partnerships. They're, they're, they're not deals where you're walking away and you're saying, good luck, here are the keys, see you later. Uh, in many cases, you're working post-sale. And in, in almost every case, you are rolling equity. And when you're rolling equity, you are inextricably linked to these businesses on a go-forward basis. So you, you better have faith and confidence that they can make it and not just try to turn the screws to them on, on cash at close only. Yep. Hey, those are all good points. And we're getting ready to wrap up here, Kevin. What other, is there anything else that you would like to talk about prior to us kind of signing off here? Um, yeah, Mike, I, 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 there is. There's one more thing I think that's important to, to talk about. When, when, we, when we work with folks, we ask them, what's your number? What, what do you need to hit in order to feel good about this transaction? And more importantly, what do you need to, to achieve financial independence? Because you got one chance to sell this business. And I'm pretty amazed how few business owners actually know that number. 
and and, and I say, look, I, I can sell your business and I know I'm going to maximize the value of it. But if we sell this thing, which is likely your biggest income producing asset and your most valuable asset, and we don't ring the bell on financial independence from from to borrow one of your terms, a whole balance sheet approach, we've done you a massive, massive disservice. And I've gotten to a point where I simply won't take on the work until they know what they need to 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 make it from a cash basis, or at least from a cash and equity perspective, to where they are a hundred percent confident that they've achieved financial independence. Um, so I, you know, I think about every entrepreneur who's listening to this uh, and the conversations I have with my advisor. I go through the exercise on an annual basis. And I, I think every business owner really should go through that uh, because it's possible you're going to be having the bad day one day and you're going to get the phone call and it, they're going to say, Here, here's the deal, here's the offer. And although it might ring the bell and you're going to call Mike and Mike's going to say, call Kevin, um, you never ever want to like, even contemplate doing a transaction until you are 200% certain that, you're, that it's going to grant you financial independence. Yeah. And I appreciate that. You and I are on the same page with regard to that in that we we just choose not to work with those business owner clients that are not willing to um, to do that discovery, to yeah. understand that linkage between the business balance sheet and their personal balance sheet and what it needs to look like after the transaction is done. So, um yeah, you can't, you just, the likelihood that you're going to have an elite exit is very small if you're not willing to do that work. And then also the second component of that is uh, some form of valuation, right? Some some form of, of outside look at your company to get an unbiased understanding of what the valuation of your business is. You know, people always tell me two things. One, that their business is worth way more than it really is. And two, they don't need anywhere near as much money as they actually do. So um, those are that's a real good setup for a non-elite. Yes, it is. And so, Kevin, thank you so much for being with me on the show. Again, every time I get with you, you teach me something new and you give me insights that I haven't quite had before. So thank you for coming on the show. Mike, thanks. It was really my, my privilege and pleasure. Thank you for a great time. You got it. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Business Owner Transition Podcast.